0: All right, and welcome to the second episode of the To Comply or Not to Comply podcast. I'm your host, AJ Yon, founder and CEO of ByteCheck, the only all-in-one compliance solution in the cybersecurity industry. I'm super excited about today's episode. I'm joined by my friend, ByteCheck advisor, overall security leader, California native, Jarek Beeson. Jarek, thank you for joining me.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me, man. You made it to two episodes and they didn't kick you off of Apple. I think you're doing something good here.
0: Yeah, for now, you know. <laughs> I got the first two out. Um well, we're getting the second one out now. We'll see how long I can keep this up. I think I'm enjoying this being on this side of the table. It it's a little bit of a different experience after being interviewed so many times like you have and myself, but being the host and I know you you have this experience too. It's it's a weird dynamic, but I'm I'm liking it so far.
1: Yeah, it's fun, man. You're, you're going to learn a lot through this process. Your guests teach you more than you could probably ever teach them.
0: Yep, absolutely. So you know, obviously, we we know each other very well. But for the folks out there that uh, don't know you just yet, I'm sure we won't be able to say that here in the next six months to a year. But for the folks that don't know you, give us a little bit about your background. Tell us about yourself.
1: Sure, uh, I'm a CISO. I work for a legal services uh, company. We outsource all the things that legal organizations don't necessarily want to do, like a discovery, class action, things along those lines. Uh, I spent my time doing all types of things in all industries. I started my career as a as a hobbyist. I, I wanted to play with things and try to connect to things that I probably shouldn't connect to. One day a light bulb went off and I knew security was my path. And I knew that at an early age, I'm probably the first generation security professional that started their entire career in security. And um, because I had that crystal clear clarity as to where I wanted to go, I didn't take some of the traditional paths to to getting there. I got accepted to a four year institution. As you said, I grew up in L.A. I got accepted to UCLA. I also got accepted to some historically black colleges, but I ended up going to ICT Tech and it was the choice for me because it was the path that got me the technical knowledge as well as it got me around other professionals that were already doing the job. One of the things about some of these trade schools is usually practitioners are the teachers and not people that just do theory all day. So I got to get some hands-on experience, building servers, uh, setting up domains, setting up networks. And uh, <coughs> so far it's worked out well for me. I took that to and parlayed that into some jobs with the government, worked with uh, some pr- professional services organizations at leading security products, companies. I did my time in the management uh, consulting space and uh, now I'm back in industry and so far I'm loving it.
0: That's awesome, man. And, and really truly the definition of to comply or not to comply, how you started your career and, and decided, you know, I, I want to go to ITT Tech over a four-year institution. And I think, you know, if someone made that decision today, it, it wouldn't be that controversial because uh, four-year degrees have kind of lessened their impact. But at the time that you did that, you know, what, what gave you that, that clarity, that courage to say, you know what, I know exactly what I want to do. I'm going to go down this path instead of following what I assume, you know, a lot of people were telling you, hey, this is the way you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go get the four-year degree. Do the things and then, you know, you go get a job and you, you know, said, No, I, I know where I'm going. I'm gonna go down this the path that's that's less traveled. What gave you that courage and and clarity to do that?
1: You know, I think courage and confidence comes from doing your homework. When you're prepared, you are more steadfast in some of the decisions that you make. And for me, I am an overly analytical person, probably what has helped in my security career, but what it came down to is when I looked at the different organizations and the different educational institutions, most of them did not have pure security programs. If they had any security classes, it was one security class, you know, InfoSec. And then when you looked even deeper, most of what they were doing was teaching you theory. So they taught you what a domain was, but didn't teach you how to set up a domain. They taught you What something like, uh, I think it was called Ethereal at the time, most people know it as Wireshark now, right? They would teach you what it is, but you didn't actually get to get your hands dirty and actually inspect and analyze packets. And I knew that if I wanted to hit the ground running, I needed to be able to have that practical experience that would translate to a real world job. And ITT Tech gave me that. And the four-year institutions that I looked into, they didn't.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think the what you said at the beginning there—courage and confidence—is the result of being prepared. That's so true, and and I I've, I take a lot of stuff back to sports just because of my background, and that's why the greats don't flinch in the most high-pressure, tough, challenging, stressful situations because they're prepared and and they know that they put the work in. And and I constantly tell people the same thing: like I trust the work that I put in, I trust the research that I've done, and then ultimately you go out and make a decision. I think that's a, a huge thing for anyone listening to take from this is you can become courageous, you can become confident if you just prepare, do your homework and understand the both sides of the coins when you're making a, a particular decision. So appreciate that, Jerick and diving into that. You know, we're recording this second episode of, of this podcast at an interesting time. It's right around the holidays. It's this weird week of the year where you don't even know what day it is. But we just had a big, huge event in the security industry. The the Log4J vulnerability just recently caused havoc over the holiday season in December for really, I guess, the second year in a row where December we've had one of these. But I want to talk about this from a leadership perspective. You're obviously someone in a chief information security officer role. You You have done a lot of different roles as a security leader when you have seen in your career and especially for log4j a zero day like this that pops up what's like that first thought that goes through your head when you're woken up in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning and you you start seeing the phone going off and everything going off what's the first thing that you're thinking of when you see something like this
1: the first thing that that i think is okay what what is the damage and who else on my team is is already aware of it and i reach out to you know my my leader over my fusion center. And I just say, hey, have we have we already started the process? The process has existed. We developed it long ago. We tailored it more after SolarWinds. I, I don't know if many people have been talking about this, but SolarWinds prepared a lot of security organizations for Log4J. It was the big celebrity vulnerability. And I, I call celebrity vulnerabilities the vulnerabilities that make the news, right? It was the big celebrity vulnerability that, told and informed executives at the highest levels that your supply chain and the products that you think you can trust can turn against you and they can become problematic. So I really just wanted to understand at the very beginning what do we know about it? What do we know about our exposure? What is what is industry saying about it? Just gather a bunch of information before making any conclusions. I find that it's important to do the diagnosis after you do the inspection.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think often you see folks in leadership roles, uh, especially in the security community, we just want to run really fast at problems before gathering all the details and, and figuring out just the right. foundation of what is actually going on. I like how you said you, you figure out who else knows because information sharing during an exercise like this is, is so important. You mentioned something that's interesting, and I, I thought about this as Log4j was unfolding. That solar winds actually helped prepare people for this for this event, and, and allowed them to exercise some of their incident response processes and procedures. Do you feel like your experience, you know, back to back years of going through something like this, the second time around, it was easier to get the wheels moving, to get the response activities going because of the experience from last year?
1: It was because we were prepared for a scenario like this. So we kind of talked about this at the beginning of the podcast when I made my decision to go to ITT Tech. I was prepared and confident. Because of SolarWinds, we were able to create a new playbook specifically for celebrity vulnerabilities. And then all of our playbooks, they get walked out in tabletop exercises. We do an exercise every month. So at this point, there's muscle memory. We don't do a tabletop exercise on the same playbook every month, but every one of our playbooks gets tested out at some point in time throughout the year. So at this point, it was a matter of, hey, we've done this before. Are we walking out the things that we have already prepared ourselves for? And when I heard the answer was yes, great. I do want to see a little bit of proof of it just to make sure that someone didn't miss a step or anything along those lines. And they kind of laid out all the things that we've done so far. What SolarWinds showed me was... Communicating down to our employees is as important, if not more important, than communicating up to our executives. So we were able to get the word out to everyone in the organization. Here's what we know. Here's what we're doing. Here is what you tell our clients when they come to you because they're going to come to you because we're going to our suppliers and third parties. Here is our, our legal perspective. Here's our security stance. And what that did was it provided a calm. One of the things in our organization that is still kind of residual is we had a pretty bad ransomware attack a couple of years ago. So I had to make sure that no PTSD kind of crept up into anybody because that ransomware attack took us out for three weeks. So people, they hear some crazy things happening on the news. Is that us? Are we going to go down again? Is my job going to be in jeopardy? Right. So my job. As the, as the CISO is to be the chief calm officer at the same time, right? I may be, I'm like a duck, right? I may be paddling like crazy underwater, but above people need to see a calm and steady presence. So that was also one of the things that I wanted to make sure that I, I demonstrated. And when the CEO looks at you and you're calm and you say, Hey, here's the situation. Here's what we're dealing with. Here's what we know about. And you speak about that in a calm way. In a very succinct way, and you give a clear action plan. You give KPIs about how you're um, going to measure the progress, though the things that you're trying to accomplish. He's calm, and if he's calm, everything else is good to go. But it's it's up to me to establish that calm.
0: Yeah, that's critical. I love Chief Calm Officer. I might have to to steal that as well from my seat here. But I think you know you're given a master's class in leadership right now. You talked about at the beginning, you just go out and, and do information gathering. You're figuring out who else knows what have they already done. You're not coming in saying exactly what people need to do. And then even on, on as things progress, you've realized that it's better to communicate with those that are communicating down to other people within the organization than up. Oftentimes you hear from leaders of "I have to go report to someone, so I, that's my focus is getting the slides together, getting the brief together, updating the the CEO or whoever else that you need to report to. But you're talking about the whole organization, and I think it just shows this empathetic mindset that you have, um, as you talked about you know potential PTSD from previous attacks and just you know people answering questions to customers. You're thinking about other people and the impacts of this vulnerability. On the rest of the organization, which I think is so important for any leader to consider, is you—you you have to understand the decisions you're making and how they impact others. It, it can't just be through a single POV of uh, how does this impact me and what I'm doing. And, and I think that's a, a really good point. And as you're going through this vulnerability, right, you you opened up all the communication channels. You're you're going through and starting to triage. And I think I saw recently you you had a post kind of talking about the aftermaths of Log4j and and things that people should be thinking of as we have kind of stepped past this. And hopefully most people have applied the patches and done their their fixes. What are some of the things that you're thinking about as you shifted from triage to response to remediation? And now in this next phase, what should leaders and CISOs and security professionals be thinking about now, kind of post-mortem of this vulnerability?
1: So my perspective on what a a leader should do, not just a CISO, a leader should equip their team, prepare their team so that their team can operate on a linear path and execute with excellence but my job as a leader is to look around the corner, right? And so as I look around the corner, I look at, okay, what can happen as a result of this? If we miss something, um, if our patch within an hour wasn't enough for the attack that happened within 30 minutes, if we have a vendor that hasn't notified us that they are also you know, at risk, how does that impact us? That's That's how I'm always thinking. And then I say, okay, if the worst case were to occur, what other controls do we have in place or do we not have in place to mitigate that? And when I communicated with the organization, I said, hey guys, this thing sucks. It sucks because it's so easy to exploit. A kid could do it. If you Google it, you have the script that you can then do somewhere else. Don't do that, but that's how simple it is. But it also sucks because most organizations Won't know how bad it is for weeks or months. The attackers are going to weaponize this thing in 100, 200, 300 different ways. It's going to be in every exploit kit moving forward. It's going to be inside of people's educational types of trainings. Like this is going to be one of those things. It's like Mimi Cats. It's just going to always be in a toolkit now. So that's why this sucks so much. But because it's so widespread, there's so much intel on it, right? So As I learned about what this exploit really was and how it operated, I said, okay, well, you know what? We have some other controls that are as good, if not better, than patching. Patching is great, except for patching is like plugging a hole while another hole opens up. What what people don't think about is, I've read it on a number of occasions now, 1% of all code is vulnerable. Well, if you patch a vulnerability with, let's say, a 1,000 lines of code, there's 10 more lines of vulnerable code that someone can find. And we kept finding that with log4j. It It was, you know, 15 and then go to 16 and then 16 has issues and then go, now we're at 17. I won't be surprised if we're at 18 and 19. So... I can't just think about plugging a hole. I have to think about maybe putting a fence around where that hole may be, and that's where like maybe your WAF comes in or something like that. I have to think, OK, well, once an attacker is in, they're going to call out at some point. So let me make sure that we have our outbound and our egress controls where they need to be. And we've already done these efforts, and we've already done these projects, but let's just double check one more time. Maybe we'll see something that we didn't see, because we have a more you know precise focus. And then at the end of the day, every attack is the same. Attacker gets in, attacker elevates privileges, attacker spreads to as many systems as possible, they establish their beachheads, and then attacker goes after whatever their objective is. Stealing their data, destroying your data, encrypting your data, you name it. As long as I stop them at somewhere in that path, I'm okay. So let's not just think about this as a log4j thing. I've been starting to preach the concepts and principles of zero trust Now, let me start to articulate to my organization, hey, remember that zero trust strategy that we started working on? Here's how that's also protecting us. Remember that budget request I made for for next year? You want to sleep better at night? Let's make sure that we execute against that. And let's make sure that we have the support that we need from the leadership down to execute against all those other initiatives that won't prevent the bad guys from getting in, but it'll prevent them from doing anything once they are in, right? And I'm constantly bringing the the strategies that we've talked about and I actually I went through the list of like eight different initiatives that we went through this year and I said because we did because we put in the waf we are more protected because we've automated patching over here we've, we're more protected because we have this new third party risk program where we don't think about just checking the box for compliance, but how can our third parties attack us because we've done all those things. We are more prepared and more equipped to deal with log4j or anything like it does not mean we're out of the weeds. This thing is going to consistently change, but this is just further, you know, instilling the confidence that you have the right leader in and you have the right team To address something like this.
0: That's huge. And and I think the concept of security professionals using this event to to go to management and try to get some of the things that you've been preaching and asking for and, and just talking about that are important. This is the perfect time to do it because security so quickly in businesses becomes an afterthought. Something that you said, Jarek, I think in the first ever talk that we did together through SANS, you mentioned that most businesses are not in the business of security. They're not security companies. So security is not going to be top of mind. And I think one of the concepts and, and tactics that you just mentioned is now using this event to be able to show the importance of all of the things that you as a security professional were probably asking for throughout the year. And that, that's a really good tip. And I hope um, you know, folks listening to this take that away. From your perspective, you talked earlier about, you know, I talked about empathy and how a lot of the things that you mentioned were showing empathy to others. Uh, Now, as you think about other CISOs who just went through this, their incident response teams, their forensics teams, their SOC teams all went through a lot trying to fight this thing and, and fix this thing. What should leaders be doing or checking in on or... Uh, Just thinking about for those individuals that were fighting those fires, that were working those 18, 19 hour days, that were really stressed about this because security professionals, all of us, you know, we were training for this, but it's not an event that you're like super excited about because your whole role is to protect from this. So obviously a pretty stressful event. What are some of the things that you do or, or tips or strategies that you have for leaders for their security professionals that are going through this?
1: I love that you asked this question because anyone that's followed me or had enough conversations with me, I overemphasize the people side of leadership far more than the technical side. And a couple of things that I did, and I don't think that's the end all to be all, but number one, saying thank you to everybody that did something to help you respond. Whether it's their job or not, doesn't matter. People need to know. That you're grateful that you helped keep your company out the newspaper, right? That you helped make the Christmas break much better than it could have been. Some companies had a really rough Christmas break, and they're still having a rough time at it. So that's the first thing is is saying thank you. That the second thing is recognizing burnout. I had a particular individual on my team. She went above and beyond. She found every single vendor that we know about. And she started to Google every single one of their names. If they didn't put anything out on the internet, she was calling their help desk. Hey, what do you guys know about lock 4 and your product? And she found 19 vendors that we would have never found that are exposed, that never came out and said they were exposed. It was huge for us. But the amount of time that she did it, she realized that they were a 24 seven shop. So she was calling at all times of the night. And I didn't realize that. And about two days into it, I'm like, why are you always green on teams? We use teams, right? And she, she's been working hard at, you know, trying to protect us from this. I said, tomorrow you're off. And if you if you log in, we're going to have a problem. S- simple as that. Like you need to re- recharge and do nothing. And you know what? She actually tried to log in and I gave her like a really mean meme and she she logged right off. But you got to recognize burnout. Your team will burn out. And you got to recognize it for yourself as well but your job is to protect your team and sometimes you have to protect them from themselves. So managing the, the burnout from your team. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's, it's the holiday time. So given that it's the, it's the holiday time, uh, I usually send a, a holiday message to, to my team and, I uh, I sent them all, every single person on my team, an individual message. We have some core values. And I talked to them about how they embodied every single one of our core values at different points in time with specific examples just in the last two weeks. Um, and it, it takes it from this core values that you put on a wall or the strategy that you put up, and it makes it real and it makes it personal, but it also shows every single person that you recognize them. And when people feel recognized and they feel seen. I mean it's a it's a good feeling. Think about when you were, you know, just starting. If someone two rungs up, three rungs up, four rungs up, reached out to you, that was huge. And if they reached out to you to thank you, it's even huger. And if they identified specifically what you did, I mean that made your day, it made your week. Maybe it made some people's holiday. So that's some of the things that I did
0: that's awesome and i and i think you know not enough leaders take time to write something personal or just like you said you started kind of you bookmark them with the same thing you know just give thanks <laughs> tell people thank you and show them that they're appreciated and that goes a long way and i and i really love the fact that you forced uh that that person that was working hard to take that time off because we're often our worst enemies. You know, people don't want to burn out. No one goes into their day saying, let me go and burn out. But there's so much pride in what some people are doing that they don't take those breaks. So you need leaders that are aware and recognize these things so that you can step in and be that sense of truth, that, that guidepost to say, you need a break. And, uh, and I'm sure uh, that individual really appreciated it. And those are the type of leaders you you want to work with. So thanks for sharing that. All right. So with Log4J, we we have to talk about compliance. You know, this is the to comply or not to comply podcast. And events like this is where we see so much of the compliance versus security and, and people see them as opposing forces because, you know, I make my money off of compliance, but I'll be the first to say that a compliance report, having a SOC two or having an ISO cert or whatever it may be, would not have prevented anything bad from happening. Uh, These reports and the compliance reports people go through would validate that you have the necessary processes and procedures to respond, and we'll get into that, but it's not going to necessarily prevent it. What's your just overall thoughts on how compliance plays a role in these celebrity vulnerabilities and the process that you just went through that's fresh top of your mind?
1: When I think about compliance in something like Log4j, I think about the fact that compliance Kind of boxes you in. Compliance is a set of controls that should be done in every organization. Some people badmouth compliance. I would never badmouth compliance. I just don't think it is the target state. I think it is a step towards the target state. And you can either get to compliance through security or you can get to security through compliance. But security always has to be where you end up. And I think about it in this way. For a long time, I've said it, and I still stand by it, that security is more important than compliance. But if you look at the specifics of compliance, I think it's more about the intent of compliance. When there's room for interpretation, when there's room for limiting how much you do, people will lean on compliance to say, hey, we checked this box at least. I want to check the box so I can demonstrate to the people that need to be demonstrated that we are doing the right things. But if compliance says do antivirus and you stop at antivirus, you've done a disservice to yourself and your organization. No compliance says EDR yet, right? And that's the example that I like to lean on. But there are so many more examples. Celebrity vulnerabilities, they require your entire organization to be all in when they need to be all in. Nothing from compliance says that. Celebrity vulnerabilities show that you have to be able to handle all aspects of responding to something, from correlation in asset management to events to vulnerabilities. Compliance says you have to have all these things individually, but individually, that data does nothing for you. You need to bring it all together to tie the asset to the vulnerability, to the potential security events, to your network security controls, to your detection and response controls. All those things need to be brought together and compliance will never tell you to do that. It tells you to have them all individually. Compliance doesn't say that you have to have people that are willing to work two or three more hours into the night if they have to. Compliance doesn't say that you have to be able to divide and conquer when you need to divide and conquer. Right. So that's the problem with compliance is it is a a set of guidelines that many people think is the target, and not only do they think of it as a target, it's almost a cop out to not do more, and that is why compliance isn't seen as as positively as it as it could be seen. And I'll tell you right now, if I followed you know NIST to the T, had a certification assessment, you know CA assessor come out and say, yep, you are aligning with 153, and I just did the bare minimum log4j would be a problem for us. Simple as that. And the same goes for ISO, same goes for SOC 2, same goes for HIPAA, all all of that. You have to start there, but you, you can't end there.
0: Absolutely. And and that's, you know, such so many good points there that we're we're gonna unpack here because I think this is an important conversation to be had. One of the things that I noticed uh very early on in my career, so specifically in SOC two, there's this criteria CC 6.8 that talks about the company will prevent malicious software from entering into their their network. And, And the standard control that the AICPA recommends and in most SOC 2 reports you'll see out there is that you have antivirus installed. And sometimes the control will say you have antivirus installed on your employees' workstations. It doesn't say anything about what you're doing in your actual production environment or around any of your customer data. And I just found it so strange that in 2021 and 2020, we still are saying the only way to prevent malicious software is through antivirus. The cool thing about SOC 2 that I really enjoy, but I don't think enough people take advantage of, but it's something that we pride ourselves on at ByteCheck, is that it's really, I think, the only flexible cybersecurity compliance framework out there where you don't have to follow a set of specific rules. So for us, as we're working with customers to earn their SOC 2, in CC 6.8, you're going to see controls around defense and death strategies. What are some of the things you're doing from a layered perspective to prevent malicious software from entering a particular environment? And I think that's where compliance can play a role. You know, It's taking a framework like SOC 2 and going above and beyond the basics, going above and beyond and tailoring it to fit a modern organization. Something that you said earlier that I thought was Really interesting is that you all do IR tests on a monthly basis. Thinking through how you were able to respond because you exercised your IR plans and your IR muscles were just already exercised, even if it wasn't the same exact scenario, people knew kind of what steps to follow because of that test. And this is where SOC 2 and other compliance frameworks should evolve. Maybe moving forward, we should change the traditional standard of hey, you do an IR test once a year, maybe those should be more detailed. Maybe those should be more frequent. Maybe we should include EDR type of controls. And I think that's where the industry has some catching up to do. I'm hoping ByteCheck can lead it. But I think some of the responsibility, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Jarek, is on the end user, is on that CISO, is on that security professional that is receiving a SOC 2 report. And you take a look at it and you say, hey, like, I see you have this antivirus control, but what about defense and death strategies? What about a a web application firewall? What about stuff you're doing in the CI/CD pipeline? Are you scanning code at an earlier state? What are some of the things that you're doing to prevent stuff from happening beyond just an antivirus solution? And and then also it's on the auditors, like auditors have to be better, have to be more technical, and stop relying on these standards. But I do think customers or people on this the receiving end of SOC two reports can ask tougher questions of these SOC 2 reports and not just let them check the box. But I'd love to get your thoughts on that, Jared.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I think the first thing that we need to do is stop saying SOC 2 compliant, right? Like, what does that mean? Because there is no clear guidelines to comply with. So instead of saying SOC 2 compliant, we have a SOC 2 report that shows how we're doing security. And somebody came and assessed us and said, we're doing pretty good. And they've only had a few things that we need to improve upon. Right. Like that's really what a SOC 2 report is. But people look at it as they have a SOC 2 report. They're good. I don't even think a lot of organizations even read the SOC 2 report. Right. They say, do they have one? OK, we're good to go. It could be full of all types of things that need to be improved upon or just really gaping holes. So I think that's the first step. The, the second thing is people need to know how to read them and they need to know what to look for. And it's not usually CISOs. I mean, they're in the smaller organizations, you're going to have CISOs that are reading the SOC 2 reports, but it's usually the supply chain risk team or the third-party team or maybe even just the GRC team that's reading it. And they're taking their cues from their leadership. So one of the things that we do is we have a set of keywords at the very base minimum. You need to see these keywords in the SOC 2 report before we say it's sufficient. And if we don't see those keywords, we need to have a conversation because now we need to understand how are you managing your anti-malware? Is it is it just antivirus? Is it EDR? Do you have it at the network layer? Do you have it in your development environments and your production environments? Are your development environments tied to your production environments? Because well, that's going to matter to me. right? There are little things like that that I want to see specifically in the report. And if I don't see them in the report, then that warrants a conversation. And then in that conversation, we'll get to a deeper level. That's something that I typically don't see. And to your point, the SOC 2 report does allow you to go into greater detail. I just had a meeting with my team yesterday and we were talking about our SOC 2 report that your team is putting together for us actually. And I was saying, hey, we're not talking about enough of the security things that that we do. Like this is our showcase of our security. We need to talk about more. But because you have that level of flexibility, you also have the ability to tone it down. So that is where an advisor, assessor, a partner is going to come into play because some companies will say, well, because a SOC 2 is flexible, I just want to have a SOC 2. And we need people such as yourself to say it's not enough to just have that piece of paper. That piece of paper needs to have weight behind it. And that weight is in how well you're managing your security program
0: absolutely and i think the point that you mentioned that people don't know how to read them is so true and and that's what i think discourages some organizations from putting forth that extra effort because they don't know how to read the report they've never looked into the details and they know that most people don't understand the details of that and and that's just more education we need to get out there in the community around where is the important stuff in the SOC 2 reports. But, you know, this is you, we're coming up on 40 minutes here, Jarek, and I think we had an you know absolutely amazing conversation. And I think uh, people hopefully learn a lot from this as well and think about, you know, the role compliance plays in their security program. I think it's going to be interesting next year as we kind of see the impacts from this as people receive SOC two reports. Should you see things in those reports about log four j and in other reports, you know, are you asking the tough questions about incident response and how their incident response plans and programs that the SOC two report says we're good to go? How how were those exercised? You know, those are some of the things that I think will be interesting to hear about next year, but. As we finish up here, Jarek, you know, I think you have a wealth of knowledge. You're doing so many amazing things. I'd love for you to take, you know, the last few minutes here to give any parting wisdom, but also tell everyone where they can find more stuff from Jarek and all the things that you're working on, how you're demystifying or, or democratizing cyber strategies, how you're leading the efforts from a cybersecurity leadership perspective coining new phrases like celebrity vulnerabilities. Use this time a little bit to brag on yourself, you know, and tell people where they can find more about Jarek and leave us with some parting advice.
1: Yeah, man, I suck at bragging on myself. So I'm probably not going to do a good job at this. But ultimately, I realize that people are drowning in information, but they're starving for knowledge. And knowledge is acquired through experiences. I've had a myriad of them. So my goal is really just to Put that information out there. Uh, you learn early on, you can either learn not to touch the stove because it's hot or you can see someone touch the stove and and not have to do it yourself, right? I don't want people to have to touch the stove if I've already touched it. I don't want people to have to go through certain struggles and hardships if I've already gone through them. And if I know keys to success that I've seen through my experiences or through others around me, I want to give those keys to other people. I want to unlock security leaders in a way that I don't think has really been done before. I'm fairly young, I'm 35. And the perception is that at this age, you shouldn't necessarily be at a certain stage in your career. But I refute that. I think that if someone has the acquired knowledge, and they have the actual skill sets, and they have the persona and the personality for the role, you can have security leaders that are much earlier in their career. And I just want to help people get there. I want to help people get into the industry and I want to help people move up in the industry and leaders that are already there. I want to equip them with more of the people side of leadership. So many of our leaders in security got there because of their technical acumen and they don't necessarily know how to lead leaders or lead people or influence people. And almost everything that I put out is to help them with that side of leadership. I usually, um, but I join podcasts such as yours. I have my own podcast. I'm getting ready to start a show with SANS pretty soon here on a, on a bi-weekly basis. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, I just put myself out there. I wish I would have started earlier. I had imposter syndrome. I didn't think people would want to hear from me if I didn't have a title. I have the title and I'm using it. Hopefully, I'll inspire and encourage another generation of people to do the same. And if we do that, all these cyber strategies will be democratized. The reasons why people keep things close to vests and inside, to me, are selfish. Ultimately, if it's in my cup, I want to pour it out. It does no good in the cup. And uh, hopefully, you know, the community will be better, better for it.
0: Absolutely, man. I appreciate it. I, I, you know, thank you for joining this. I think one of the things that was cool when we met in person for the first time a few months ago was that we both kind of talked about our journey of sharing and building our personal brand, where we just like, yeah, we, you know, we started out and didn't really think anybody would care and realized pretty quickly that people did care <laughs> about what we were saying. And it, it was a, a strange experience. So for anybody out there that's thinking about starting their personal brand journey and you're wondering, if anyone's gonna care what you think, that's that's exactly where Jarek and I have started. And it's been amazing to watch your growth and trajectory and just learn a lot from you, Jarek. So I appreciate you coming on this podcast. We'll we'll definitely have to run this back again in the future because there's so much wisdom and knowledge dropped here for professionals of any industry. You know, I don't think this is just for cybersecurity. This is in general. So thanks again for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. For everyone out there listening, please subscribe and leave us a rating. That definitely helps and look forward to seeing you on episode three of the To Comply or Not To Comply podcast.